Hello and welcome to a Waypoint Church podcast by Jim Privet. We hope you enjoy listening to it. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and although our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let's stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses. And also the interest you're charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Xerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, 
I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all around the world today, people are opening it and listening to it. And Father, as Jim comes to bring your word now, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be upon him. Father, will you strengthen him, give him the words to speak, not, those, not just those that you've given him in preparation, but will you anoint him with power and authority. And as we listen, open our hearts and our ears to hear what you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Trevor. If you've never seen Trevor before, this is Trevor, he's new to our church, so I don't usually do this, but maybe just a round of applause for Trevor for reading us, that'd be really good, thank you. So my name is Jim, uh, if you don't know, I'm one of the leaders here at the church and it's a real honour to be here with you this morning. I've not spoken up here since March 2020, which is crazy, this is my first live uh, talk since then, which is a slightly more nerve-wracking, I, f I forget how it feels to be honest, but it's, uh, you're all look lovely. I'm assuming you're all smiling under your masks by the way, so otherwise, thanks, thank you Rob, that was a smile. Uh, I, if, as well, I'm holding a mic today rather than have the Madonna mic on because I've got a stinking cold, so if you see me coughing and spluttering, do not panic, I haven't got COVID, I'm not going to be like, spreading it anywhere, do not panic, it's just a cold, and so I'm he heavily lem sipped up at the moment, just to let you know. Um, so it's uh, so good to be with you. We're jumping back in this morning to our series from Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah 5, as you know. As Andy said earlier, thank you Andy for that. It was great, wasn't it, last week to have the 10 talks with Emily and with Claire. If you've missed it, please catch it up online. They were really, really good. Uh, just 10 minute snippets really of what God has been saying and been placing on their hearts and therefore on our heart as a church as well. And I want to ask a question, you don't have to answer it out loud, but hopefully this week, as you prayed for that one person to share the gospel with, hopefully you had a chance to do that. If you're feeling a bit guilty now, don't panic. You know, you've got another week, so um, maybe do that this week instead. Back in today to rebuilding. And uh, you'll know, if you're with us a couple of weeks ago, Keith last spoke to us. Keith is back now from holiday. Did you have a nice time, Keith? There you go. Great stuff. Isla White, was it? Sunny? <laughs> so it's great that Keith's back with us. He brought us our last message from Nehemiah 4. So far, we've moved through uh, chapters 1 through 4. We've looked at the crisis when Nehemiah heard that the wall has been demolished, then the renewed vision. You know, that you're going to rebuild the wall as well in Jerusalem, then starting the work. And then two weeks ago, we looked at dealing with opposition. 
dealing with opposition. As Nehemiah brought the, the, those, uh, the, uh, sorry, the, the, the Jewish people back into uh, Jerusalem to see what was going on, to start building the walls as well, they started to get opposition, didn't they, from people that were already living in Jerusalem, Sanballat, Tobiah, the Ammonites as well. So they had this external attack. In Nehemiah 4.12, it says that wherever you turn, they will attack us. You have this sense that as they're building these walls, they're under attack from people that were living locally as well. Some of the key phrases, I don't know if you remember this, some of the key phrases that I took from Keith's talk a couple of weeks ago was that we are in a battle, battleground and not a playground. Do you remember that? We're in a battleground and not a playground. That actually we're not in a cruise ship, we're in a warship as well. It's one of Keith's favorite phrases, but it's so true. You know, we should expect opposition as we come back to church, as we talk about Jesus, as we find our place in the kingdom of God, what he's doing in our lives and our contexts and our mission fields, we should expect opposition. My mum used to say to me, if you're not bothering Satan, Satan won't bother you, right? That's a little bit of a, perhaps a, a flippant statement, but actually is that a sense that every day as we step up and step out for Jesus in his kingdom and his kingdom plans for us, no matter if it's here in our life groups, if it's in our workplaces, our relationships, we should expect a level of opposition. That's going to happen. And so expect it, pray against it. Have people around you that will pray with you, that will support you, that will love you. Anyway, moving on to this week. So the building was going up fast, the walls are going up quickly, but there was a problem brewing again. And these weren't issues of an external attack at all. This was kind of an even fiercer attack. And it meant that they were downing their tools. They stopped working on the wall. It jeopardized the whole mission. And it came from within the Jewish community itself. This wasn't an internal attack where people weren't happy with their jobs or their roles or what they'd been told to do by Nehemiah at all. This was an attack that was an effect, basically, of the broken relationships that they had. They were being mistreating one another in the Jewish camp. Lots of people mistreating and abusing other people. And they were behaving selfishly. So as a result of these broken relationships, Nehemiah was faced with a broken community that was in danger of derailing the whole project. Now, chapter 5 doesn't just happen. We know that the war went up in record time, 52 days. So this isn't something that just cropped up out of the blue. A lot of scholars say that because they came back from a completely different, a foreign culture to come back to Jerusalem, they had been influenced a lot by that culture as well. So the Jewish culture is quite collectivism, a bit more of a shared faith. They share things together. They, they do life together. But actually, they'd come from a, an influence where there's a lot more of an individualistic type approach to life. And so that began to really affect and erode how they treated one another. So over time, those influences began to really, really take root in that community. So really, the wall itself wasn't the issue. It just proved to accelerate or to highlight the problem that was going on. Something about chapter 5, I like to really get to know, I guess, the characters in the Bible and uh, just kind of put myself in their shoes, I suppose. That's something to me, how God really speaks to me, brings the, the, the word of God alive as well, just trying to get to know some of the characters. And actually, what, what do I look like in reflection to them? What I see about Nehemiah in chapter 5 is that he's not just a great leader of projects, he's also a great leader of people. He's a great leader of people. In fact, he prioritizes the people over the project, which I think is incredible, isn't it? He's more interested in what's going on in the community than the project itself, the reason that they went back to Jerusalem. About six years ago, seven years ago now, uh, Abby and I, we used to run um, youth camps up at Lockerley Water Farm. 
Southants Bible Camps, for those of you that remember, if you're local. And uh, we used to do um, all sorts of different games just to get kind of people into the, I guess, the swing of it, icebreakers to feel part of the group. And one of the games we did was if we could build the, the tallest tower out of straws. Have you done that before? Yeah, I need a little bit of interaction, if that's okay. Straws and sellotape, um, and that's it, really. So we gave them 10 minutes. There's about five teams, I suppose. 10 minutes to, tour the, to, to build the tallest tower out of straws and sellotape. And it had to be able to hold an egg as well. And we talked a little bit about the teamwork and all the necessary things of that as well. Gave them 10 minutes, came back in the room. There were some groups that had tried to sellotape the top straw from the ceiling and like hang it from the top straw to try and kid us. Uh, other groups just couldn't be bothered. They just didn't even do anything. Uh, but there was one group, one group, who had built this incredible structure out of straws. It was really tall. looked really good. Triangles is the key. Anyway, uh, and then we put, they, we put an egg on it, and it held the structure really, really well. And we were like, wow, this team, they're really good. They're getting this. And after a couple of minutes, we began to ask them some questions. So who did what? Whose role was what? You know, that kind of thing. And what was really apparent, that it was just one person's job. He hadn't listened at all to anyone else in his team at all. So really, they were completely disillusioned by it. They hadn't really got involved whatsoever. He had this amazing structure, but actually, the team was completely a mess. And this reflects, I think, what we see in this passage really well, that the outward appearance was great, but the inner reality was really, really poor. The walls were looking impressive. People were doing their bit, but it was falling apart. Functionally, the community was working well, but relationally, they were really poor. What would you do here if you were Nehemiah? If it was your job, <laughs> just to build the wall, that's it. Just to build the wall, don't worry about the other stuff. Would you have just carried on? Would you have stopped? What would you have done? You would have forgiven Nehemiah, wouldn't you, if he just said, look, don't worry about that stuff. Let's, hopefully, that will sort itself out. You know, we won't, we, won't, we won't get involved in all that kind of thing. Someone else might deal with it. But he was desperate for healthy community, wasn't he? He was desperate for healthy community. What about you in your own contexts? As we return to church, are we desperate for healthy community? Authentic community? Yeah? I hope so. I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> That's so important. Healthy community reflects the very nature of who God is. In your workplaces, are you desperate for healthy community? In your life groups, healthy community, authentic communities where people can share where they're at, what they think, where they feel, what they feel. I was debating whether to say this, but I'm going to say it. I walk with different people and talk with different people. And one thing this last year has um, really, I guess, thrown up for some, not all, but for some, is where they're at with their faith, you know? This last year has been really difficult for lots of people. And what it's done is it's stripped it away in lots of ways. Some people have, have said outwardly to me, you know what? If my strongest expression of following Jesus has been sat in this room <laughs> or going to life groups, then it's got to be more than that, hasn't it? It's got to be more than that. And they're really struggling with, if I come back to church and I'm in this place where I'm not sure what I said yes to years and years ago, <laughs> Will I be accepted? Will they be accepted? They should be, right? There should be no judgment. Authentic community means that we can ask those heavy questions. I don't know what I think. I don't know what I believe. I'm not saying that about me. I'm just trying to reflect some of where the church is at right now. 
I don't know how important it is to come back to church. Some of us are thinking, I'm so far away from that, I can't even understand it. I get that, but it's our job to help them, to pray for them, to create authentic place of community where they can have these questions. They're not judged, and we stand alongside them. Can we do that? Yeah, I hope so. It can be really easy, though, can't it, to fall back into kind of the functional element of relationships, especially at church. Oh, Tim's just the guy on the sound guy at the back. He's just the sound guy at the back, right? The worship team are just here to, to serve my preferences and the songs that I want to do. You know, my work colleagues are just that. They're just colleagues. They just get a project done and then we go home and that's it. You know, or she's a stay-at-home mum. He's a stay-at-home dad. Whatever it might be, we can really begin to see people functionally. And we're missing something when we, when we do that. It's way deeper than that. For us to get to authentic relationship as a church, as life groups, in our places, wherever our context be, we have to go beyond the functional. Yeah, we do. Jesus in John 4, there is this um, passage where he's tired from a long journey, and so he sits at a well. You know this? And the Samaritan woman pulls up. She's not in a car. Pulls up. <laughs> yeah, that was a modern version. She pulls up alongside him. Hey, uh, no. She, and he's tired, right? And he wants a drink, so he asks for a glass of water. And uh, she's like, oh, but you're, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. I find that really interesting. She went straight to the functional. She labeled someone straight away. I know it's more than that going on, and I appreciate that in the passage. But she went straight to that level of relationship, functional. What I love about Jesus is that he sees her ontologically. Ontology is like the study, the simple study of, of existence, of being, I'm a human being, not a human doing, right? So he didn't just go, oh, sorry, I'll just have my glass of water and I'm off. He carried on, didn't he? He pressed in. He asked questions. He got to know her. That's revealing the kingdom. That's kingdom stuff. That's authentic relationship. I love it. Hopefully you love it as well. Let's get to that place here. Let's get to that place here because it can be easy just to rush off. I know we have to at the moment because of COVID, etc. It can be easy just to go to life groups and tick that box and say everything's okay. Even at work to see other people functionally and not ontologically, that deep sense that they are a human being. Nehemiah recognized that. He recognized that. That the people that were working on the wall, they weren't just the output or a function of some effort that they've put in. And that's today what I wanted to challenge us on, if that's okay. Is that all right? Just the touch points that you have. You can't touch anyone at the moment because obviously it's COVID. Those touch points throughout the day or the week where you come into contact with other people. Those relational moments, no matter if they're the closest friend in the world or someone you just bumped, up, bumped into in a shop. Whatever your context or mission field, I'm going to say this a lot, by the way, when I speak, is your context is what, wherever you are at. That is your mission field. Claire talked about this last week, didn't she? That she got really challenged in Greece. Actually, it's not about going away on mission. That's great, and people are called to that. But also your mission field are the people that are in your life. You're God's plan A for these people. That's your mission field. So we need to learn to treat people as human beings, not human doings. That's probably not right, I think, you know what I mean. Does it make sense? Yeah. Now I get this. Some of us are thinking, but I'm British. Not all of us are British here. And this kind of flies in the face sometimes of that kind of British stiff upper lip kind of thing. But it means talking to people. Keith spoke a couple of weeks ago, didn't he, about you wouldn't go into a hospital and say to someone, you're right. <laughs> it just doesn't really fly, does it? you probably say, what's up with you? What's wrong? What's wrong? 
I think that's a great question to ask. Sounds a little bit negative, but actually what you do is you get right to the depths of something straight away. And you're allowed to say nothing. It's good. That's fine as well. But actually, you're also, we should be able to say in this place, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that. That's what it looks like to be a community. I believe how we choose to interact with each other reveals or conceals the kingdom of God. I believe how we choose to interact with each other reveals or conceals the kingdom of God. Reveal, patience, kindness, goodness, forgiveness, truth, which we'll talk about a bit later. Conceal, yeah, I'm all right, I'm off. What are you doing? What, what are you bringing into those relationships, those touch points throughout the week? So, how do we get and develop places of authentic community in our churches, in our life groups, in our homes, in our relationships? So I pulled out some life lessons, if you like, from Nehemiah. Do you want to hear them? I hope so. <laughs> um, the first one, Nehemiah 5, um, first few verses, is to hear the outcry. It's to hear the outcry. So the core problem, as Trevor so brilliantly read, was that you had wealthy Jews buying up all the food and uh, selling it at an interest at a higher rate to the poor, poor Jews in that community. Now, a lot of scholars say that some of their storehouses were floor to ceiling with this food, right? They'd bought up that much. They'd bought up all that food so that no one else had it. And then they sold it on. And when the people couldn't afford it, as we read, They'd have to pay for it in other ways, families, vineyards, jobs, cattle, whatever it might be. Now, this was not only sinister, but also complete contradiction to the Mosaic law, which is what they were under at the time. Exodus 22:25 says, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a moneylender. Charge him no interest. Deuteronomy, it was forbidden to charge interest on a loan to a Jewish brother. In Ezekiel 22, beyond the book that we're reading from at the moment, it kind of says in Ezekiel 22 that this is the reason that they were brought into captivity in the first place, because of the mistreatment of one another, the abuse towards one another, the neglect, the selfish living that was in their community. This is the reason they were already in captivity, and yet they're doing it again. It's bonkers, isn't it? It's crazy. These were people that were just hearers of the word. <laughs> they weren't doers of the word. And it really, really began to divide this community. This lack of love towards each other and obedience to Scripture is what broke Nehemiah's heart. But he heard the outcry. You see a reflection of this emotion again from Nehemiah 1 when he hears about the walls. They're in complete dismay, just destruction. And he weeps. You, hear, you see this emotion again in Nehemiah 5. He gets angry. He's not just a great leader. He has great compassion as well. Great compassion. Hearing the outcry and showing compassion, Nehemiah begins to address the community. He moves from restoration of walls to restoration of people. And restoration is such a key word, isn't it, in the Bible. It's a key character of who God is. It's his attribute. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross that whomsoever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life, so that we can be restored back into relationship with him, that we can live for him every single day, that he's the king of our lives. Restoration can do a lot, but it can come at a great price. Jesus had to die on the cross, didn't he, for our restoration, so we can be reconciled back into relationship with God 
It can come at a great cost. And the first attempt by Nehemiah was confrontation. A key part of restoration is we have to confront the issue. It's not enough to know there's a problem. It's not enough to know that there's an issue. In our life groups, in our church, in our relationships, in our workplaces, it's just not enough just to know there's a problem. If you want to see authentic community, then we have to confront it. Excuse me. Confrontation doesn't need to be an aggressive word, by the way. I think when we, when we hear that word, we think, oh, no, I'm not very good at confrontation. There's ways in which we can do it. There's good, loving ways in which we can confront things. We need to learn to be able to speak truth in order to see true community. Because what good is it? What good is it as we come back into church and it's not authentic? This is just a show. You know, life groups, we just show up. We've got our face on, our church face on. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere. It's difficult, I appreciate. I appreciate that. Nehemiah would have been thinking the same thing. What's the point in having these amazing big walls if we're just attacking each other inside anyway? We're not real inside anyway. It makes no sense. As followers of Jesus, are you determined to speak truth to each other? No matter how difficult that can be, to shine a light on things in people's lives, to allow other people to shine a light on things in our lives, real humility, to encourage people. Some of the most transformational moments in following Jesus have come at a party. <laughs> I won't lie. I've been at parties with my friends who also follow Jesus, and I've perhaps done something that's a bit stupid. You can fill in the blanks. And it just takes a look from some of my closest friends who follow Jesus. And that's the key thing. I've had one, one of my friends before just say, I thought you were better than that, <laughs> to me, at a party once. I don't know how you'd respond. It wasn't a judgmental comment. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? <laughs> True? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We need to be in community where we can be honest with each other. That's what authentic relationship looks like. I know people that would push that person away for saying it. That's more of an insecurity on your part. If you've got people in your life that can't tell you the truth, I appreciate that's difficult, but you need to hear it. You need to hear it. That's how we get to an authentic level of relationship here, life groups, and in our relationships as well. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. That's so important. And we will all, in all things, grow up into him who is Christ. We're not called to some level of pseudo-peace, some pseudo-relationships, pseudo-church, pseudo-life groups, whatever it is. We're, called, we're not called to refuse the hard work. If we want to see authentic community in which God builds his kingdom, it needs to start with us. It's risky. I'm a dad of two kids, and uh, <laughs> you said it was all right to share. I'm going to say it. Is that all right? Are you sure? Because I won't. Okay. Is that a no? Yes, I can. All right, okay, fine. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. It's life. Um, so, yeah, my, my oldest, Amelie, she's 11. She's going on 18. And she's a teenager. And uh, I won't lie to you. In the pursuit of authentic community at home, sometimes I have to learn to pick my battles. <laughs> and that's difficult because I love her. And... I want to get involved in every decision and thing that she, <laughs> she says and makes. But also, I don't want to push her away. So there does need to be a level of wisdom in this as well. You know, sometimes I say things and then I come downstairs and I'm like, oh, what have I said that for? 
and like go back up and says, I'm so sorry, can we pray? Uh, can you forgive me? And then about an hour later, why did I did it again? And it's constantly. But we need to strive for that level of relationship. We need to. For most of us, the courage to confront does not come easily. We don't like rocking the boat, as I don't sometimes. Usually because we worry about how people will take us. We end up being isolated if we confront something or pushed away. It is risky because you don't know if someone's got a receptive heart. It'd be nice to think every time you confronted something in love and grace that, that it would just go the way we wanted. But we cannot be guaranteed with that. Nehemiah didn't know, did he? He didn't know when he was going to confront those people that they would give it all back. But it doesn't make it wrong. He didn't stop. He didn't think, well, I won't do that. Prayerfully, wisely, and with great grace, he tackled the issue. Many of us right now have situations, I'm convinced, that are going on either with us or people that we're seeing, a relationship with at church, at life groups, wherever it might be. And we are called to acknowledge and confront certain things in love, in grace. We're not 100% agreement on certain stuff. And so that the outcry might not be a collective people saying, this isn't right. It might be the Spirit of God just in you saying, that's something right there. And you might be sensing that right now, that the Spirit of God is just confronting you on something. Maybe it is that he's calling you to go and speak truth into someone else's life. In love today, someone might need to hear, Dad, why do you drink so much? Or we need counseling. Or I need help. Or... Can you pray with me or don't treat others like that? Acknowledge the outcry, however large or small that could be. Choose to confront the issues in truth with a grace-filled heart. It's so important that it's a grace-filled heart. And the more we build authentic community, the more God's kingdom comes. We're going to move on. Uh, the third thing is to about, make, it's about making it right, making it right. Nehemiah does two things, doesn't he, to make this right, the situation he calls them to give it back, everything that they've taken, give it back, and they do, amazingly. <laughs> right, when you confront someone, you're not always going to be guaranteed that that's going to happen that quickly. In fact, you might still, some of you in this room, be dealing with relationships where you've confronted something and it's still completely broken as a result. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't confront it. It doesn't mean you were wrong. It's right to confront it. And the next thing he does is he makes them accountable, doesn't he? He makes them accountable. He's like, I don't quite believe that you're going to do this, so I'm going to get you to sign a bit of paper and make you accountable. A bit like a pinky promise, right? It's going to shake. It's not me. God's going to shake, get rid of you if you don't agree to this. I love that bit as well because it's not about Nehemiah. It's not about the people. It's about God. They're making this commitment before God to treat other people well. That's beautiful. I think it's absolutely beautiful. So he does. He hears the cry. He makes them accountable. And he begins to make it right. And that's so important. Sometimes we want to control things. We've got, we want to make it right. We've got to make it right. We can't always do that very well because we're not in control. That's up to God. Um, a few years ago, I don't think Paul's here. When we were, oh, we, do you remember the Edge <laughs> youth group? Our youth group Edge Friday nights that we used to do for every, every week until COVID hit. Um, used to get loads of young people to it. And there was a season where they seem to break everything in the, in the church. Um, and uh, I'm glad someone's laughing. Uh, I wasn't. <laughs> there was one phase where we had the fence between the old side of the building and this 
field as it was then. There was a fence up, and they'd all sort of congregate around there to sort of be let in. And um, there was just holes being kicked in the fence. We didn't know who it was at first, so we pulled them all in for a couple of weeks, talked to them all collectively, like I am now. So I said, come on, respect the, you know, all that sort of stuff. Well, I can't hear the words right now. Respect the building, that kind of thing. And uh, it didn't work, didn't work. And then, so the next week it happened again. And eventually we, we caught the group <laughs> doing it. And um, we brought them in. We asked them to apologize. Because the team were getting really affected, right? The team were like, we're not here just to babysit, to police young people all night. So it began to have a real effect on them. And uh, they said, sorry. So we're like, fine. You said sorry, that's fine. And then next week, it was all fine. No. <laughs> next week, they did it again. They were just kicking holes in the fence at the bottom of the, of, of the, um, of the, bottom of the fence. So we were like, what do we do? So I wrote a letter or an email. I think it was letters, actually, uh, to each of the parents <laughs> to make them accountable. <laughs> uh, that went down really well. Um, no one responded. But three weeks later, one of the lads that was in this group who was with, living with his dad that weekend, his dad drove over an hour to come to the edge that night. I was thinking, oh, when he turned up. Uh, and his dad got him to apologize to the whole edge team. All right? And then he offered to pay for the damages as well. And I just thought, that is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. He's role modeling something to his son. And he's making it right. And the atmosphere in the edge team changed straight away. Straight away. Because he was prepared to make it right. To make it right. Doesn't everything that we do does not, if we confront it, doesn't end up like that. That's a lovely fairy tale. It's true. It doesn't always end up like that. But it helped the edge team. <laughs> and it helped us to remember to keep on course with the mission while we did we run the edge. Nehemiah. Last thing. Nehemiah was a role model. Be a role model. This is where we can really affect the other, the outside communities, if you like, where, we at, where we're at at work, that kind of thing as well. He was a do-as-I-do person, not as I do as I say sort of person. And in those last few verses, you're, it's revealed that he's that governor, isn't he? Remember reading that? He's a governor. And he could have taken all the financial trappings that he wanted from being the governor, all the good stuff from being in that position. But he isn't prepared to do that. He doesn't lord it over people. You see that he... He labors alongside people. He gets his hands dirty. So again, you start to see that people are more important than a project and a position. And more important than a project and a position. He was a doulos, Romans 1. He was a slave, right? Not to Christ. You didn't know him back then. <laughs> but to God, his king. That was his heart position. And it created authentic community that he was prepared to get, if you like, off the platform. <laughs> And get his hands dirty. You see this authentic community being built around him when 150 plus people come and eat at his dinner table. <laughs> That's a big table. That's a massive table. But you see it. They see something authentic about who he is as a leader and as a person. That he honors people. That he's not prepared to lord it over them. But prepared to get his hands dirty. To labor alongside them. And so he builds this really authentic community again. He starts to deal with the issues. And in verse 16, you see he's alongside those in the group, prepared to work again on the rebuilding of the wall. So you see, in my mind, I went to this place. You know, as, we prepare, as we prepare to confront things and hear the outcry and make it right, God's work begins to build again. Right? They pick up the trowels again. They start making the wall again. His mission is getting back on track, which I think is fantastic. So important. 
as we're coming back to church, let's do that. Let's build these authentic communities. Some of you might be thinking, that's just not me, right? Jim, you're paid to be a Christian. <laughs> and I'm not. So, and also, Jim, you don't work in the real world. <laughs> and I do. I did do. I used to work in the real world. Um, and I get that. I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, I just, I don't think you should just stay in that place where it's all right for you because you're different to me. I don't think we should stay in that place. Because surely the point of Jesus is that we die to ourselves and we're now in Christ. So we, I get the insecurity side of it, what people might say, all that kind of thing as well, but we've died to ourselves. We're now on, now on Christ's mission in our context. That's why you've been given the Holy Spirit, the dunamis, the dynamite, right? To go into those places. You've got all your needs. You're, you're equipped to help you build these authentic places of community. What would Jesus do as a, as a nurse, as a doctor, as a bin man, as a single parent, as a, as a child, in a relationship with parents, what, what would he do in those places? Would he turn the other way? Would he interact at a deeper level with those people, wanting to get to that place of authentic community? Lastly, Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's not about us. It's not about us. But in humility, value your work colleagues, your boss, those at church, your assistants, your daughters, your sons. Not better, but above yourself. In all your relationships with one another, have the mindset of Christ Jesus. That's what Nehemiah had right there. An authentic community is built around those that operate within it. If you want healthy, authentic communities where God is building his kingdom, then how you live matters here authentically and in life groups and in your other places as well. What could church be like as we begin to rebuild if we really want to pursue authentic community, real relationships where we hear each other's suffering, where we pray for each other, where we confront certain issues, where we try and make it right and we role model it to one another. Role modeling Christ like attributes means establishing his kingdom. And where God's kingdom is, it's exciting, isn't it? Because excited things can happen. Okay. I'm just going to pause and pray. Take a moment right now to think about all that God has given you. The people he's put in your life. People at this church, where you're placed, your context, whatever it might be. Identify ways you can be used starting today to better serve, to stand with them, to shine a light on a situation. Perhaps you're called today to go away and do that. Identify how we can better care for each other, love each other, build an authentic community as we come back to church. Let's pray. We all have areas in our lives, Lord, where we need to better align what we say with what we do. We'll have areas in our lives that we choose to not confront and make right for whatever reasons. Lord, forgive us for that. It could be that we're worried about what might happen. But Lord, we, we are striving for that authentic place of community, of relationship. 
where people can come into church and ask hard questions. They can talk about some of the things they've done and they're loved and accepted, that we can pray with people and get alongside people. Lord, I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We don't do this alone. This is your work. We just need to step aside and allow you to do it in our lives. So Holy Spirit, come. Have access to those areas. Forgive us for the things we've ignored. Forgive us for our actions sometimes. Forgive us for the times that perhaps we've seen people as functional, not that deeper relationship that you always pressed into. Teach us to be more like you, Jesus. Help us to achieve authentic communities where your kingdom reigns. Your kingdom come. Jesus, amen.